Welcome to Citizen. 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 Citizen Science. Citizen Science Show. We're here tonight at the Australian Citizen Science Association pub. Yay! Yeah! And this is a different podcast tonight, and I'm here with Jess Lombros. Did I I get it right? You did. I like it when people lie. (laughs) I try not to. Try not to. (laughs) Jess is from Streamwatch. Yep, Greater Sydney Land Camp. Greater Sydney Land Camp. And I am so excited because I did Streamwatch when I was a TAFE teacher when I was back in the day. And I did love just going out there and catching the little critters. Because it brought me back to my childhood. When I was a kid, I was spending all my time in the creeks catching things. But when I grew up, I found that now I was catching things in the creek and identifying them and and telling the quality of the water. And I believe that the job that you're doing is so important because everything from the top goes into the ocean. So Jess, could you just have a yarn with us? Of course. I'd love to. I'm so excited that you love Streamwatch and that it's meant meant something to you over the years because, as you were saying, it's such a flow-on effect, water puns, um, or that ripple effect of if we grow up caring and understanding something, then we're more likely to be able to look after it or take care of it or contribute to understanding more and more of the systems around us. And water bugs are a great example of knowing your health of your waterways because... Based on the biology, you can identify the stream pollution index. So different water bugs have different levels of sensitivity to pollution. And the biology is a really good indicator of your water quality. So it's a really hands-on activity that the community and all different levels can participate in to develop not just an understanding of their waterways, but to be able to contribute to citizen science and the bigger picture based on the data they collect. So how did you get into it? It started when I was at primary school and a teacher handed me a water bug net and sent me off to the creek and I just thought it was the best thing in the world because I wasn't stuck in a classroom trying to learn the monotony of the curriculum. I was actually exploring in the creek and once you're open up to that underworld life of the bugs and what's in the water, you just learn so much and it's learning through doing. Yeah, that's what I liked about it too. What is the most exciting thing that you've seen in the water? I find new things all the time and I think that they're really all exciting from the electric eels to the frogs to the platypus to the crayfish and the symbiotic relationships between the organisms but I really really love looking at the water bugs under a microscope to then be able to see them digest all the algaes because that's just wild. Do so you scuba dive? No, I don't. I um, I live in the Blue Mountains and would it's kind of really hard to... Would you like to have a dive in one of the creeks? Yeah. Because there's a river up there called the Gross River. Oh, yeah. And I've been scuba diving in the Gross River. Nice. <laughs> what did you see? The thing that amazed me the most was I started looking at a ribbon weed, you know, just the weeds underwater. And I was looking at it and I was thinking to myself, what is that growing on there? So I got closer and I started looking at it really really closely and I was watching for the first time in my life oxygen growing on a plant yeah. and it was just started off as a little bubble and it got bigger and bigger and bigger and then it went pop 
and it went do 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 do, and I went, wow! I just seen oxygen being produced off a plant, yeah. and then I went, oh, look at all those plants in the water with little oxygen sitting on them, and then I touched it, and then the plants just all the oxygen just went to it, and I sat there for about another half an hour watching the oxygen grow on the plants. So I didn't see anything like really exciting, but that is exciting. It was for me. Yeah, and look, because I'm the land care coordinator as well, we do a lot of restoration work and rehabilitation of water bodies, so our creeks and our dams and our farm dams. And we bring the community and citizens to participate, especially across Sydney. Um, some of our degraded systems, a lot of the people ask me, well, how do we fix these waterways? Or how can we improve the water quality? A lot of it has to come down to the riparian zone and the plants surrounding the water bodies because they put oxygen back into the water. And we're missing a lot of those deep-rooted plants where the roots put the oxygen back in. And we're missing a lot of our seagrasses and our water ribbon weeds and our native vegetation in the waterways because they produce the oxygen and everything's connected. So it's not yes. just the plants or the bugs or the water, it's the relationship between them all. And it's teaching kids and community how those relationships change when there's imbalances. How do you get the kids in- involved in the Streamwatch these days? I'm really excited to still be in this position and bringing Streamwatch back into schools and bringing it back to get kids engaged. And not all kids love bugs and waterways as much as I do. I think the really important key is that you don't have to be a keen entomologist or get into the creeks to really understand it. We had a workshop last week with Uncle David King and Leo Robber with the Painted Rivers Project and we had three high schools come and we did artworks of water bugs. Oh wow. So having the art students come and participate and having the science and the culture and cross multidisciplinaries of learning about our waterways, we all need water to live and we all have water inside us, so it connects us all. That's right. And with that area that you're in, the Blue Mountains and the base of the Blue Mountains and the Hawkesbury and all the little streams, have you seen it over the period of time improving or...? I think that that's why it's really important to have long-term data sets because every location is site-specific and data can tell us so much information. So I think it really depends on whether there's been a huge urban development or a huge restoration project. Oh, okay. You need the data. Well, you know, that data can track the time, the story of what's happened over time. So if you are looking at long-term trends, it's important to put that into context of what's happening around your local environment. So it's hard to say whether it gets better or worse, but without the data, you don't know. So some areas have definitely improved and some areas have, you know, been a bit neglected and could be improved. But without having the data, it's hard to tell. What would you hope for the future of Streamwatch in your area? Streamwatch is in Sydney and it ranges from Greater Sydney from the Blue Mountains to Central Coast and Illawarra. And we are very closely related to Waterwatch New South Wales. It's the same program. So I'd really like to see a national Waterwatch program come back 
across Australia so that all the kids could participate into citizen science oh, yeah. and contribute to the data set and so that the data would be so much more. But a program is only as good as it is funding. So we really need investment into our communities locally, state and nationally because I know so many people that have been inspired from the program as a kid that have gone on to do great things in the environment from what they've learned as a child. So I just really hope that Streamwatch continues to inspire so many more generations and communities to actively make a change in their local environment. I was out at Will Kenya lately. The Barkinjar people out there, the local Aboriginal people, Barkinjar means river people, and I was saying to them, we should get these kids involved in a stream watch because out there they're getting onto the mobile phones a little bit too much. But that's happening everywhere. All the kids are getting onto the mobile phones. Look, it's uh, really hard to disconnect and reconnect. Yes, from technology to... Yeah, but it's so important to actually go outside and realise that we're a part of nature. We're not just a part of it. We belong to it and it belongs to us. So we can have a positive impact or a negative impact, but we need to be aware of it. And to be aware of it, we need to be in it and open. And actually, I've been working with my local high school kids, uh, Biribin Landcare, which is led with Indigenous traditional elder Uncle David King, who's just a trailblazer. He's been doing swamp care in Katoomba for 20 years. Wow. I started volunteering with him with Streamwatch and teaching the kids about water bugs. 17 years ago when I was doing conservation and land management at Tay, he's just started bringing Streamwatch back to the gully through Biribin Land Care and the work we've been doing with the high schools. We've been able to do a peer teaching where the high school kids teach the primary school kids and the Koori kids have been involved to plant a bush tucker garden for the school. Beautiful. So amazing what can stem from community and also when we have our Indigenous leaders at the fore front and really sit down and listen about their connection to country and river stories and when we can bring stakeholders across the catchments and rivers to listen and build relationships then we can help each other to move forward and restore the landscape by restoring our relationships. I remember when I was up at Byron Bay once and there was a whale that got washed up on the beach. It was pretty sad. And then all of a sudden, they came down with these biohazard bags and they cut up the whale and they put it into the bags and they took it off to hazardous waste. And I said, well, what are you doing that for? They said the chemicals in the ocean from 50 years ago, like the DDTs and everything like that, were in the oceans. The chemicals get into the plastics... And the krill eat the plastics that are laced with the DDT. And then the the whales eat the krill. It's just interesting that a chemical or something from the land 50 years ago could be killing the marine creatures of today. It's pretty scary, actually. That's a process called biomagnification. So we have trophic levels in our environment. Every time there's a chemical compound that doesn't break down or become inert or it's... It's called residual. And every time it goes through a plant that gets eaten by an animal, that gets eaten by another animal, that gets eaten by another animal, the more time it goes through the food chain, the more toxic it becomes. And that's why the whale was... Well, I don't know why the whale died. I wasn't there. But it's really sad, the impact that we're having on our natural environment. But it's really important to understand that if we learn to work with nature 
We can mimic biodigesters like our myceliums and hyphae, which are our mushrooms. That that natural royal is to break down compounds, but also new emerging biochars and bacteria. Biochars, that gets me excited. I know, right? You're saying all the right words. I think that if we can really start building these wetlands and artificial filters to combat our stormwater and our runoff from industries or from our urban development, then we can try to reduce the impact that we're having on our natural landscapes together. But it's really about understanding these chemicals and the processes and implementing systems that functioning and are sustainable in the sense that they don't just become toxic sludge pits, but they have succession and functioning like a wetlands that can filter and absorb all these toxins so that they're not just in the ocean. Because growing up in Australia, I love taking my kids to the beach. Oh, yeah. And I don't want to take them to, you know. So I think it's really important to empower the children on how they can help through citizen science or through active clean-up groups. We've got so many friends of groups across Sydney and Jono at Clean for Sure are actually out there taking out the plastic particles, uh, cleaning up the mangroves and doing their bit to prevent the pollution because the future generation deserves better and so do our whales. Yeah. Can you touch a little bit more on biochar and what biochar is? It's a waste product. So biochars are like a carbon that can be made out of multiple dairy waste or uh, cow poo or banana peels or different carbons or different um, materials produce different biochars that filter different things. It's a material that's cooked in an oven, like a university lab, and it's charred at like 500 degrees for three days with no oxygen. Okay. So it turns into a really, really fine coal particle, and I'm pretty sure it's something like one gram of biochar can filter like football fields of water because it's so porous because it's charred so high it has the ability to filter a lot well thanks for that explanation yeah i've got a better idea of it now well i know there's probably more information but we're at the pub and we're having fun (laughs) like um, the stream watch isn't really about biochars but it's really about engaging the community to understand more about their waterways we have kits that we can get out to the community to monitor the waterways so we look at nitrogen, phosphorus, temperature, dissolved oxygen, turbidity, electrical conductivity, which looks at your salt and your heavy metals that may be present. And we store that database in the ALA, the Atlas of Living Australia. Oh, wow. I just learned about that today. It's a great resource. And it, we've just made our data set 30 years open source. And all our historical data is now open for access. And we need people to help contribute to the areas that they love. And we're working with our river keepers across Sydney and our water keepers and the environmental education centres and schools and councils to make a splashback a stream watch. So I'd like to talk about water quality. How many different types of water quality parameters? So Streamwatch has always traditionally just looked at the water chemistry in the water. We look at temperature and dissolved oxygen, but we look at those together because they're really related. So as the temperature goes up, the oxygen levels go down. 
we take the readings in situ in the creek because depending on where you test is going to have a different temperature. And what does in situ mean? In the creek. In the creek. Yeah, so we don't take the sample out and then take and test it back, you know, on the bench because you're not getting a true reading of the temperature of the creek. Okay. So not only do we look at the dissolved oxygen and temperature, those two combine to look at your total saturation of oxygen in the water, but we also look at electrical conductivity and we measure that in microsiemens. Okay, that's a big word, electrical conductivity. It means that we're looking for an indication of how much electrical current moves through the water. So it moves through heavy metals or salt. So it's a fancy way of saying salt and heavy metals. And why do we measure that electrical conductivity? Does that tell us, what does it tell us about the water quality? So it depends where you are in the landscape. So you're going to have a different electrical conductivity if you measure near the beach because that's salt water or a low-lying inland lake or reserve water body or the top of the catchment. Oh, I think I can see now where you're coming from. So the more salt there is in the water and the higher the electrical conductivity. Exactly. Ah, beautiful. I can remember this story of a guy telling me once when he was in prison. I don't hang around a lot of prisoners. <laughs> But he was saying that when he was in prison and they wanted to have a cup of tea in their cell, that they would get the foil from inside a cigarette packet and they would put some salt in the water and they'd put the foil into a PowerPoint and then they'd put the foil into the water and then they'd turn the power on. To heat it. To heat it. To yeah. get a cup of tea. To get a cup of tea. Crazy. If they didn't have the salt, they couldn't do it. Because salt conducts electricity. Yeah. And so different plants, bugs and fish have different parameters that they need to thrive. When we had the huge floods come through, a lot of fresh water flooded our estuary systems and we got a lot of fish kills at the mouth of the river because all our saltwater fish wasn't used to the fresh water change. Yeah, that's right. My local dive site had lost all its kelp. It's just starting to come back and also all the sea urchins died as well. So yeah, it was a, a mass extinction event when all the fresh water came down. Only probably the first top four metres of water, but underneath that everything survived. Yeah, so it's really important to understand a local environment, what parameters it needs to be healthy. Streamwatch can really break down a local area. Collecting data sets over a long period of time can tell you what the water quality tends to be based on the surrounding environments and it gives you a bit more local knowledge to put it into context. How do you measure like looking through the water, the visibility? So that's called turbidity. Turbidity. Yeah, turbidity. And we measure that in two different units. So whenever you take a, a water quality sample, it's really important to use the unit of measurement to put it into context to understand the numbers. So with turbidity, which is the murkiness of water, yeah. because water needs sunlight. If it doesn't get the UV, then it can become quite stagnant and the sunlight filters a lot of our water as well. So when there's too much mud, it's not good for the oxygen and the biology that needs the water to live. So the turbidity is measured in NTU and FTU. And that's a fancy measurement to say. NTU, you're looking at the water quality vertically. FTU, you're looking at it horizontally. Okay. 
So the turbidity particles, it's the spectrum that you're taking the measurements from. Interesting. In those two different measurements to measure the visibility of the water or the turbidity of the water, that FTU and the NTU, are they generally the same or can they be different? They're generally the same. The turbidity tubes that we look under that has the the crossover, if your measurement's really, really turbid, you're going to get 400 NTUs. And if it's really, really clear, you can see all the way through and it's around 10 NTUs. FTUs takes a little bit more of an accurate reading, but they tend to be consistent between the measurements. So we're just looking at different ways of taking those readings. Beautiful. And pH. Ah, pH. (laughs) The negative log of the activated hydrogen ion. Oh, well, that's a very technical (laughs) term. Well, it's actually a logarithmic scale of alkaline and acidic. So pH neutral 7 is in the middle. And we're looking at, well, the ions, but also whether the water is acidic or alkaline. So we all need a pH to... It depends on the geology of your site. So if you're near a limestone cave or you've got a huge flying fox bat colony, you're going to have a higher pH. Raindrops are a pH of 5.6. Well, are they really? Yeah, unless you live in a highly industrial area where you might get change in the atmosphere. But our waterways across Sydney and our soils in Australia like to be slightly on the acidic side, depending on the landscape. But then we like building roads and concrete, which is lime. So your chemistry can change with the infrastructure around it. And a lot of our plants like a slightly acidic and that's why you tend to get a lot of weeds around your urban interface because the chemistry has changed. Oh, very interesting. Yes, so we also look at... Phosphorus and nitrogen. Okay. Those two, therefore, plant growth, aren't they? Well, it depends what sort of plant. (laughs) So if you're looking at your veggie patch, our veggies love phosphorus and nitrogen and compost. But if you're looking at a native habitat, our plants have evolved over a very long time to have very little nutrients. So too much nutrients on our vegetation can promote weed growth and really inhibit our native vegetation to grow. So it's all about balance and knowing what plants need what. But talking about plants, that's a really good indicator of water quality. Once you've got high nutrients levels of nitrogen and phosphorus, then you can see a lot of either weed growth or algae blooms. So when you've got too much nutrients running into a waterway mixed with with high temperatures can tend to get blue-green algae outbreaks, which is not good for anyone's health. No. I know the ocean because I spend most of my time at the, at the moment in the ocean, and I know we get these upwellings from... Where is it again? That place over the other side. New Zealand. Ah. Yeah. And in summertime, if we get those big upwellings, they bring up all the nutrients. Then the sun hits it. Voila. We get a big algal bloom in the ocean. Well, that's why riparian zones are so important to buffer our waterways and remove the nutrients and stop all the debris from getting into the water because too much runoff and leaf litter and sticks eats up all the oxygen and then you've got huge fish kills. What is a riparian vegetation? So a riparian vegetation is the vegetation that grows along a waterway. Okay. So it could be a creek, it could be a river, it could be a wetlands. 
and all those sedges and rushes and big trees buffer and build resilience to our waterways. I think we're supposed to have an intact riparian zone of 50 metres across a watercourse. Oh, wow. Yeah, show me a watercourse across Sydney that has an intact riparian zone. Oh, they'd be lucky to have 10 metres. <laughs> and that's why it's so important to have the vegetation because it protects our creeks and enhances the water quality. So then if the silt's not getting into the water, the visibility isn't down low. So when it gets to the ocean, there's a lot of turbidity in the water, which decreases the visibility of the water and then goes out to the ocean. And Well, voila. it is source to sea and yeah. the more plants, less topsoil and dirt that's eroded, the less bank erosion so the plants stabilize the bank and it also uptakes the nutrients stopping it from getting in the water as well and provides temperature like a cooling for our fish and our biology that's found in the waterways so it protects it not just structurally but buffers the change in temperature as well oh interesting i wanted to ask where does the phosphate come from a lot of our agriculture and peri-urban landscapes use quite a lot of nitrogen and phosphorus and potassium and after heavy rain and what's peri-urban peri-urban i don't know a lot no no, no, that's okay i I use all these big words without realizing it peri-urban is not rural but it's not urban okay it's like where all the hobby farms are yeah or like richmond and hawkesbury and the outskirts of our city areas okay where we've got community farms or the clay soils or the alluvial floodplains that's really good for growing food. Okay, and that's where the phosphate and the nitrogen come from. Well, not all of it. Not all of it. Yeah, yeah, we do get it. So naturally occurring, you'd get excess phosphates from bat colonies. Okay. So when the bats, the guano, but yeah, it tends to be from us. Not just the fertilisers we use, but the washing your car. It's recommended instead of doing it on the driveway, you do it on the lawn because it hard surfaces or the phosphates from the dishwashing liquid and shampoos and cleaning products can wash into the drain and contaminate our water systems through our detergents and our use of phosphate. Okay. Is there any other way of measuring water quality? Uh, We always looked at the chemical components, but we also look at the biology. So under the water, we do macroinvertebrate sampling. Oh, that's a fancy word. For water bugs. (laughs) Oh, you're not bugging me at all. No, no, no. So different water bugs have different tolerances to water pollution. So what we're actually measuring is your stream pollution index. Okay. And your SPI can be calculated through how many water bugs you collect through the system you're monitoring and how sensitive they are to different water quality parameters. So just collecting water bugs and classifying them and citizen science collecting that data tells a very long story of the health of the catchment. Oh, wow. So us scuba divers who are swimming in the really good water down below or we're swimming in really bad water down below, way, 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 way up in the catchment, there's people up there monitoring it and doing their best to make sure that everything is perfect. Well, we're not always just going out to the clean places too. It's really important to know where the points of problems are so that we can advocate for change 
for our regulating agencies to work together to implement better strategies and then track that change over time. Okay. Well, that sounds good. So this weekend I'm doing a water bug workshop at Cup and Saucer Creek, okay. which is in a highly urbanised area in Sydney that has a catchment area of urban development. And last time we did the water bug sampling, it was in an artificial wetlands that was built to filter the stormwater and we're finding it to be in good condition. Oh, fantastic. And you wouldn't expect that. No, not in Sydney. No, the volunteers that maintain these places and and come out and weed and work together to maintain the wetlands, they saw an echidna. Oh, where? Right in the middle of Sydney. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, and it's these built wetlands to protect our rivers and our stormwaters that over time function and create a habitat sanctuary that promote the good beneficial micro macro invertebrates and they filter the water and they bring the life back. Beautiful. So not only do we look at bugs and water chemistry, but we're also starting to implement vegetation assessments as well. Okay. So that we can track the health of a river and a stream through what is growing because plants are a great indicator on excess nutrients or healthy waterways, just whether it's intact or whether we have natives or weed growth. Sounds fantastic. And is there anything else that we've missed about water quality? I think the biggest thing about water quality is that it's not isolated. It's a catchment. And there's so many different factors. Variables. And there's so many different things that actually affect the quality of the water. So you can't just take a one-off sample and have that tell you something. You need to take it over time and you need to put it into context. So whether you've had large rainfalls, it works together. So I think that that's the biggest thing is it's not just vegetation, it's not just biology, it's not just chemistry, but they're connected. And it's learning about those connections and in-depth relationships of our aquatic places. Beautiful. Yeah, and there's Water Watch networks all across Australia. So Streamwatch belongs to Water Watch New South Wales and there's Water Watch in Melbourne. I encourage everyone to get out in the creek and make observations and learn as much as they can about the places they love. And be a child again. Yes, to explore and discover and and be interested and ask questions. And if you don't have a Water Watch program, advocate for it to come back into your community. Oh, and there's the Waterbug Blitz, which is a national program. Oh, Waterbug the waterbug blitz. So we can't end without, like, you know, letting everyone know that if it, they've got a phone yep. and they can download the waterbug blitz, it's a national Australian program, and they can collect waterbugs and identify them through the bug and upload the data. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Just from your pocket on your phone and a net. It's not like the old days where we did it on a sheet and then <laughs> and then couldn't remember where we put the sheet. Well, I think it's always good to back up your data because you might not always have internet. So I'm a big pen and paper girl. Oh, that's good. How would people get in contact with you if they wanted to get more involved in Streamwatch? Greater Sydney Landcare, we have a website. Um, you'll be able to find Streamwatch in the pull-down We have many projects like Creating Canopies, the Koala Project, Cumberland Plain Conservation Project, Streamwatch, and we just really want to empower and educate our communities on how to protect, enhance, monitor and conserve our bushlands and our lands across Sydney that we all love and enjoy. Fantastic. Thank you very much for coming on the show. So nice to meet you at this conference. I just love the work you're doing. You've been listening to Citizen. 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 Citizen Science. Citizen Science Show.